Welcome to part two of Matthew Hopkins, The Witchfinder General. As we left off last episode, Matthew Hopkins had successfully sent eight suspected witches to hang thanks to his methods, and had scoured the countryside looking for more to bring to justice. His methods had been brought into question, so a delegation was sent to look over the proceedings of the next batch of witches he brought in, one of whom was a clergyman. And so, we will start this episode talking about John Lowe's. John Lowe's operated from Bury St. Edmunds for a short period there, where he was reprimanded for not conforming to the rights of the established church. In 1599, he married at Branston, where he settled, working on repairing the back of the local church, which at this point had fallen into disrepair. But everything wasn't as rosy as it seemed. Repairs, you see, came out of the tithes. They provided a never-ending fund of contention, making most of the villagers there sort of resentful of the parson of the parish. The people of John Lowe's parish knew him as a turbulent spirit being possessed with the humour of multitude of vexations. You see, John Lowe's was a physically intimidating man, and if he couldn't finesse his way into what he wanted, he would then threaten, not physical altercations, but litigation against those who were very much in his way. And so, in 1615, a man named Jonas Cook testified that John Lowe's was a common barrator and a disturber of the peace. In his defense, Lowe's declared that he had simply been exposing the guilty consciences of the men. After this trial, Cook and a group of men accused a woman named Anne Anson of being a wild, wicked witch. The vicar Lowe's defended her, saying that she was no more of a witch than he was. It was a big mistake to say this in front of a group, since they were sure of her witchery. When the constable called to collect Anne, Lowe's denied that she was even there. She was later snatched from her house, and Lowe's immediately turned to violence, threatening the men who had taken her. In February of that same year, Cook and his men testified that Anne had murdered John May by witchcraft. She was convicted and hanged. But it seemed that the township was still being affected by dark magic, with livestock dying, and the men involved with that trial falling mysteriously ill. Cook was quick to point to John Lowe's, after which his son fell ill, and in May, his daughter died. Lowe's rebuttal to this was litigation, filing for defamation. In July 1615, Cook was found guilty in order to pay £28, which was about a year and a half's wages for a skilled tradesman. In the same session, Cook persecuted Lowe's for witchcraft. Lowe's was presented for trial on four charges, which included the death of Mary Cook and abetting Anne Anson in her destruction of cattle. The grand jury threw out all the charges except for one, and that one was acquitted so Lowe's was ultimately discharged. Lowe's then fired back at Cook with another suit for accusing him falsely of witchcraft, 
but the results of this charge were lost. Whatever the outcome, Cook tried to launch another attack, this time at the court of the king's bench, but he had to drop it, presumably because of the costs. Honestly, if there were bags of money and none of the charges stuck, I'm sure these guys would have gone back and forth for uh, indefinite amount of time. But it did eventually stop with the publication of a tract titled A Magazine of Scandal in 1641, which spread like wildfire, detailing, among other things, John Lowe's previous run-ins with religious authority and his abhorrent witchcraft. It seemed that outward shows of godliness didn't serve as a shield against accusations. Remember, Anne and Rebecca West had been saints on earth according to contemporary sources. Matthew Hopkins knew from the Bible that holy men could be corrupted, and that the devil had once posed as an angel of light. When Matthew Hopkins called into town, a man named Nathaniel Mann called forward to testify that his child had fallen sick and died after John Lowe's had given him and his wife two shillings and sixpence to feed her. This was the second time Lowe's had been accused of witchcraft, and it would be the last. Lowe's body was stripped and searched for marks. He was kept awake for three nights, and still he didn't confess. Matthew Hopkins was not happy with that, so he dragged Lowe's six miles to Hopkins' Framling Castle and threw him into the stagnant waters of the castle moat. Now, Lowe's floated as he was a human being, and so he was condemned. Now, interestingly, people tried to provide, like, a controlled experiment by jumping in with him, but they obviously floated to the top as well. The irony of this was not lost to contemporary John Rivet, who wrote that was no true rule to try him by, for they swam as well as he. It's also noted the Branson Parish Register says, Hopkins, his chief accuser, kept the poor old man walking several nights till he was delirious and then confessed to such familiarity with the devil as had such weight with the jury and his judges. Part of his confession involved a visit to a seaside village, where he commanded an imp to sink one of the incoming ships, killing 16 people. With that, Lowe's was sent to Ipswich Jail to await the Assizes at Bury St. Edmunds. They swim. The mark of Satan is upon them. All those accused of crime in the area, just 50 square miles in England's fourth largest county, south of Norwich, and nothing further than 10 miles of the Suffolk border. The English countryside was changing due to political unrest. The Royalists were on the march, raising villages and pillaging towns. Because of this, many of the accused witches never really were condemned at this time. You see, Overcrowded jails were a liability, plenty of disease and riots. An intelligence report indicated a plot to seize Norwich Castle prompted Westminster to decree that no one should be incarcerated there, and the existing inmates moved so that the castle could be fortified. These scattered prisoners were largely forgotten. The outbreak of witches in the predominantly Protestant area was not missed by the Royalists, who utilised the stories in propaganda, despite driving hard the fact that the Christian population had been infested by the devil's workers, many royalists understood the metaphorical use and saw the executions in Norfolk and Essex as unnecessary and brutal, and said that Suffolk would 
benefit from a fair trial. The Protestants weren't free from the propaganda machine either. They told a story of Prince Rupert, the son of a German prince and the grandson of James I, who had a dog called Boy. Uh, Boy was said to have been a familiar, having seen many skirmishes and survived when many men had died. Roundheads were said to have fired sure shots at Prince Rupert, only for Boy to swallow them with no harm. Now, he ended up dying in 1644, the dog that is. But, you know, don't let facts get in the way of a good propaganda story. Now, on a slightly unrelated note, you might picture Boy the dog as like a, a bloodhound or a golden retriever or even like a German shepherd. But no, Boy the dog was a hunting poodle. Granted, woodcut prints make everything look strange, but the pictures of this dog, it makes it look goofy as fuck. I recommend you look it up. It is the weirdest looking animal. They swim. The mark of Satan is upon them. Even with civil war raging in the countryside, Westminster commissioned an assize for the 24th of July, 1645. A report was delivered to Parliament that called into concern the method of which the confessions had been extracted. The witchfinders weren't named in this particular report, but considering their connection to these cases, Parliament would have known their previous work that they carried out. And in this case, Parliament granted a special commission to hear and determine, usually called in cases that required swift and discreet action, such as dealing with like treacherous plots and captured ringleaders of riots. While the men left in charge of the Assize were God-fearing men, many of them were skeptical of the charges brought before many of the accused men and women, if not outright against the idea of imps and flesh and blood devil entirety. It would be the 26th of August when the Assizes were to take place, with a total of at least 150 accused of witchcraft. Now, Sergeant Godbold gave the jury a threefold problem in opening the courtroom. Witchcraft was hard to prove unless the accused confessed, but the confession should be given purely voluntarily and unconstrained. And the reports from Suffolk indicated that confessions were given in any way but voluntarily and unconstrained. He closed with, There must be a most special care taken, both of the execution of the law, and that also all tenderness might be used in a matter wherein lives and immortal souls of many were concerned. On the first day, 90 cases went before the jury. Only a few minutes were considered for each case, and 16 cases were thrown outright, with about 60 approved for trial. The remainder were left for the next day to consider again, Due to the lack of records, it's possible that many of these people left over just simply died in jail. And so, finally, trial was beginning. Jurors were sworn in and witnesses took the stand. Matthew Hopkins and John Stern were among the witnesses. Due to the change in how they operated, this particular trial only required them as witnesses for seven of the suspects. At least, that is what's recorded. Now, the mood in the court was tense during these trials. Stern had two cases outright rejected by the grand jury and three others acquitted. 
And his statements as a witness were full of contempt, possibly directed at the jury members who were simply throwing his cases out. But to be fair, the jury was not out to get the witch finders. They simply saw each case individually and determined an outcome based on the evidence. John Lowe's was found to be guilty and was sentenced to death. Though Sergeant Godbold interjected afterwards declaring no more witches were to be subjected to trial by water, which could have led to the acquittal of several more cases to come. Now finally, at the end of the day, of the 60 cases seen, only 16 women and two men were convicted and sentenced to death. It seemed the jury was a bit more discerning than those at Kelmsford. The remainder of the 150 suspects were left for the next day. This next day would never come. News from Cambridge of the marching of the King's army spooked the town, and the condemned prisoners were fast-tracked to be executed the following morning. They were rounded up and sent to a fortified barn to await the night. All bar one made a pact to remain silent at the gallows and engaged in singing of the psalms. The following morning, they held true to the promise and met the rope with a confidence. Possibly brought about by the personal knowledge that the charges leveled against them were false, and that their souls ultimately would make it up to heaven. They swim. The mark of Satan is upon them. The bury started to pick up, though not on the scale previously seen three weeks later. Some suspects were not tried until a year later. Some of them ended up like Sarah and Alice Warner, who were executed and more were simply abandoned to less than ideal conditions of jails, such as Ipswich Jail, living their lives there until they eventually succumbed to disease. The eyes of authority during the Bury trials leered doubt at the witch finders, and it would be a rule from Sergeant Godbold that would begin to turn the general population against them. You see, he ruled that due to the scale of the arrests, the prosecution of suspected witches in the county should be a general charge upon the towns and villages that were presenting them. Now, keep in mind, many men in the area were far away at war, and many of their horses and levies were sent to support those soldiers. As the flair for witch hunts faded, these towns were left with debts. Those that kept their zeal had to deal with feeding of the prisoners, which led to officers collecting bread money from the locals. The crowds that had reveled in the deaths of men like John Lowe's were now left paying for it, and they were left to reconsider witch hunting in the future. Now, despite this reluctance, in areas that Stern and Matthew Hopkins had yet to visit, the witch hunts spread like an infection. Pamphlets outlining trials often forgoing the cases that were thrown out and adding emphasis to those that were executed, made it to those areas. A true relation of the arrangement of 18 witches at St. Edmund's Bury. Also included a nifty how-to guide, as well as other accounts of witchcraft, such as devil laying birth to evil offspring that morphed into ugly shapes before escaping into the night. Now, barely a month after the Bury trials, three women were hanged after confessing to having attended a Sabbath. Now, their confessions were similar in style to those extracted by Matthew Hopkins, suggesting that news of the witchfinder's work had made it as far as Faversham, or that they had even visited there in person. 
Now, we do have accounts for Matthew Hopkins in Town's Witchfinding after the Bury Trials due to the requests of him being on public record. He advised on numerous more potential witch cases. It doesn't seem like he had learned at all from the cases thrown out since the accounts indicate that he performed the exact same types of brutal extraction that he always had. Something, something was different though. Many of the cases from this point had clear character of the devil in them instead of imps. We have an account of a tall black man in the moonlight taking a penknife and cutting a suspect's hand, using it as an inkwell to draw up a contract. We also see the devil appearing as black creatures such as birds to direct suspects to sabbats. The accounts also tell how several were afflicted with curses as becoming healthy upon the confession of the witch. Old folklore pokes its head up again with wax charms apparently being used in witching. Over the few months that followed we see eight women and two men, a gardener and a sailor, present for trials scheduled in December. But before then, on the 9th of September, Matthew Hopkins walked into Yarmouth, uh, 50 or so miles south of Ipswich. The myth that everyone knows, as old as the witch trials themselves, tells of how in England, condemned witches were executed by burning. While this definitely was the case in Scotland, where burning was a statutory punishment, it may have been mingled with stories about the Marian martyrs burning, images of apostate bonfires. This idea was current with the 17th century people as well, despite the last heretic being burned three decades prior, and that every witch executed in the last century had been hanged. So in this September, we see Matthew Hopkins involved in a case that had a little legal loophole that allowed for the burning of a witch. Burning was still prescribed for treason, and women who were found guilty of murdering their husbands were also found guilty of treason against her natural lord and master. And so we look at Mary Lakeland. Mary was considered a respectable wife of a barber, the parish of St. Stephen's knew her as a professor of religion and a constant hearer of the word. Possibly owing to her faith, for she was considered to be a Baptist, she had a few enemies in the parish and had developed a reputation for witchcraft. It didn't help that, as a general rule, Presbyterians saw a woman professing religion as a perversion of the natural order. The gossip around town was how she had sent a pair of dog-like imps to harm William Lawrence after he called in a debt of 12 shillings. Lawrence's child had also been bewitched. The record is vague as to what the bewitching entailed, but again, she was pressured by Matthew Hopkins to confess. Now, she never denied God or Christ, but it seems like the devil didn't require that. And the most damning evidence against her was that soon after her confession, Lawrence, his child, and the maid died. Henry Reed, who was once engaged to Mary Lakeland's granddaughter, stepped up as a witness, detailing how he had broken off the marriage. He had been hexed with a tumour on his leg, in the shape of a dog. 
Doctors from many villages weren't able to fix it, the lancing produced nothing, and removing it would lead to pretty much removing the entire leg. So that was a no-go. All in all, there were nine indictments leveled against Mary Lakeland, including the charge of torture and murder of her husband. There are literally no details beyond this, despite every other trial having a lot more detail. Just no other details, apart from the fact that she tortured and murdered her husband. And so Mary Lakeland was sentenced to death. She was lowered into a barrel of pitch and then chained to a pole sticking from the ground. The executioner stacked wood around the base and upon the signal, lit it on fire. I hope that as was the custom of the time, that the executioner reduced her suffering at least a little bit by strangling her or stopping her heart via a blow to the sternum. I know it doesn't sound good, but I mean, burning to death seems like such a terrible way to go. The following morning, the coals and ashes were raked, careful to make sure that there weren't any leftover bones, because even the smallest shard held magical power and could be used in magical rituals. For people who rejected the rituals, there was still a deep-seated superstition that change of religious dogma couldn't remove. Henry Reed reported that morning that his stomach was better, so he had regular ulcers during that time as well, and that the tumour on his leg had cracked and started to heal. By October, Reed's recovery had found its way into a London print shop where it was added to a seven-page guide to the law against witches. The cost involved with just Mary Lakeland's case came to three pounds, three shillings, and sixpence. They swim. The mark of Satan is upon them. Ten months had passed since he had begun his witch finding, in which Matthew Hopkins had cut legal corners in a way that raised an eye in Westminster. His work was almost done in Suffolk, and he was writing inland. In spring 1646, controversies at Anglington, Horham, and Branston were brought to the magistrates in the area concerning having to pay for the trials against the witches. The magistrates held to Sergeant Godbold's rule that the town or village that was responsible for the costs pretty much had to fork out for it, and they were ordered to pay what was owed. Around April 1646, John Stern returned home. I guess it was to spend some time with his wife and play father to his now two-year-old daughter. While at home, locals brought to his attention a boy who was familiar with Stern. It was a boy who had been accused of witchcraft the winter prior, but the case had been thrown out because, you know, he was a child. Since Stern had last seen the kid, his mother had been hanged for witchcraft, and now accusations flew at the child that he was following his mother's work. Stern probably felt slighted for his previous dismissal of the boy, but got him to confess to the devil's work nonetheless. Now, we really don't know what happened to this boy. We don't have a name, and at the very most we can trace is that he was still alive in jail in the summer of 1646 in a story that circulated at the time. So it goes that a notorious offender was placed in the same cell as the boy, who was chained hand and foot. The jailer discovered the felon had escaped and threatened the boy until he told him what had happened. The prisoner wanted nothing more than to go home, some 16 or so miles away, and hug his wife again. The boy had made that possible. 
His mare-shaped imp materialized and spirited away the prisoner. He gave the drailer a precise location of the felon. Upon follow-up, they found the convict exactly where the boy told them it would be. The convict was enjoying the final hours of his life with his wife. Honestly, for what it is, the story of the devil's work, it's actually kind of sweet. They swim. The mark of Satan is upon them. Now, I'm, I want to take a moment to talk about someone who wasn't either a suspect or involved with the witch hunts themselves. I want to talk about a man called Henry Moore. Now, he was a firm believer of ghosts and witches. He wasn't a Puritan. In fact, many people labeled him as a royalist. Now, this man was into all sorts of freaky, being a theologian, philosopher, mystic, and occultist who believed in all sorts of metaphysical phenomena. But he looked at these through the lens of science and experimentation, at least as far as that goes in 1646. As far as he was concerned, as long as witchcraft could be proven a reality through physical evidence, it should be tried in a court of law. Moore required true stories, true stories that he saw with his own eyes. I recommend anyone who is interested in the occult or metaphysical theories of the time read Henry Moore, Magic, Religion, and Experiment, as well as Thinking Demons. Moore had the pleasure of examining several witches himself, and because of his studies, he didn't immediately dismiss what he heard as flights of fancy. Moore observed a witch failed to recall the Lord's Prayer and the Creed as a means to exonerate herself, but noted that was neither here nor there, and it would be up to the jury to convict them. When they were executed, Moore was still very much unsure of their guilt. He knew that insane people have confidently affirmed that they had met the devil or conversed with angels, and that it was nothing more than their imagination. Nevertheless, this subject fascinated him, and he continued to write about it and the Witchfinders. Now, speaking of the Witchfinders, let's swing back to those guys. By this time in 1646, they were running over and Fendrayton. Stern records that the devil had warned the witches of the Witchfinders' approach. On March 10, 1646, the nine reprieved Essex witches were granted pardon due to the criticism of evidence. Matthew Hopkins and Stern continued across the east. While they aren't named, Stern was placed on the northeast of a town called Northampton, and their usual methods echo through preliminaries carried out there. At Denford, a farmer named Cox had accused a young man of the parish. Cox said that this man had spooked his cattle. No, not harming them, mind you, just spooking them. He had to get on his horse and round them up in his yard again. You don't understand. Stern did what he did best, and soon the young man, deranged out of his mind, admitted to having sent an imp to torment the cattle. In Thrapston, Sir John Washington owned a family manor. By this time in his life, his lands were bare, his cattle had all but died, his wife and five children had died as well. He was sure to follow by the way of the bottle. It didn't seem that Washington really cared that much to accuse a man of bewitching the manor, but the local townsmen certainly did. 
A man called Old Cherry was a beggar and had a run-in with a local farmer. After some choice words directed to Old Cherry, Old Cherry told the farmer that he hoped that his tongue may rot out of his head. And what do we have on the record here? That before the farmer died, his tongue indeed did rot. It was said that it hung from his mouth by its roots. The townsmen used this as evidence that Old Cherry had hexed the Washington Manor as well. Stern, of course, got a confession from Old Cherry. These two witches, along with several others, were sent to Northampton Jail to await trial. Before they could sentence Old Cherry, it seems like he took his own life, having been found one day with twisted pieces of fabric around his neck. They swim. The mark of Satan is upon them. In the summer of 1646, Kelmsford Jail had two now-pardoned witches die while waiting for transport. By this time, plague was running rampant, 200 cases each and every day in London alone, and Parliament ordered anyone sick to be quarantined in jails. Matthew Hopkins was more or less unaccounted for during this spring, although we have plenty of evidence of Stern's work. We see him back on the radar in the same summer travelling along the border between Bedfordshire and Huntingdonshire, where they heard word of a coven in Tilbrook. A spokesperson for a nearby town informed Hopkins and Stern that they decided to rat out some witches in their town. They told of one suspect who had been searched and nothing had been found. Stern told them that the devil sometimes hid teats used for imps. Townsmen had told Stern how they had captured her while she was fleeing town and had tossed her off a bridge into the river where she floated. Dragged out of the river, she was searched again and this time they found bruises. These bruises were certainly witch marks and not at all because she had just been tossed off a bridge. Stern then tracked down a farmer who told of a dog that had wandered into his yard. That's kind of it. The link to this case isn't really recorded though it's submitted as evidence. And speaking of not recorded, neither was the outcome. Whether she was sent to the court and tried fairly, unlikely in these circumstances, or if a mob simply lynched her. There is a little chance that she made it out with her life. There were men who were starting to stand up to witch-finding. Not just the judges that denounced the trials by water, but common men who looked at the unfairness of the tests and methods of extractions and spoke up against it. At a place called Great Staunton, a minister named John Gall was concerned for the township he looked after. It is strange to tell what superstitious opinions, affections, relations have generally risen amongst us, he wrote, since the witch finders came into the county. He talked to the suspected witches in jail, and their words did nothing to cool his anger against Matthew Hopkins or Stern. Still working at St. Neots, Matthew Hopkins was preparing to leave for Kim Bolton in a few days when he heard of Gaul's intervention at the jail. It frightened him enough that he wrote a letter which basically told the town to get ready for him earlier than expected because he was leaving soon, and he would definitely be steering clear of Great Sorton. Now, it isn't really clear how John Gaul got his hands on that letter, but it ended up in his possession nonetheless, and you can bet that he retaliated. 
While Matthew Hopkins occupied his time in the summer, Gall launched a campaign of preaching in Great Sorton, hoping to stamp the simmering coals of witch hunting in the town. In his sermons, he drew on his own experiences, talking to the prisoners as much as he did the Bible. He recalled Francis Moore, who was forced to sit cross-legged on a stool. No food, no water, not able to relieve himself. Gould couldn't be accused of hearsay since he had written to the witchfinders and had received a response straight up confirming it. In one sermon, Gaul confronted his congregation, asking them if it didn't trouble their consciences. People were placing their faith in the witchfinders more so than God or Christ. Gaul told his people that searching for witches served as a distraction from what would truly protect them from any sort of witchcraft, their faith in God. He also doubled down on the errors found in trials and compared the witchfinders as no better than the Catholic inquisitors that inflicted pain and nurtured superstition among the simple folk. And the thing is, it wasn't just Gaul either. Clerical observers were beginning to notice how many neighbours falsely accused each other and realised that witches might confess simply out of fear. Now, how many of these observers were present when Matthew Hopkins addressed the crowd about the practice of witches? We simply don't know. What we do know is that Gaul was present. He was also present, along with Matthew Hopkins and Stern, though they didn't testify in this case, during a trial where at least five witches were convicted. Gaul was appalled by the results and resented the magistrates. Civil war had caused chaos with the judges and magistrates, with everyone fleeing to other homes or just away in general from war fronts. So for a small period, magistrates were appointed by the community, and these men usually held little room for compassion, their hearts already set on bloodshed. Gaul would go on to publish his work, Select Cases of Conscience, Touching Witches and Witchcrafts, adding a preface in which he had been moved to publication by personal criticism, including hostile remarks about his preaching, which can be presumed were from Matthew Hopkins. Since Gaul had also included the letter intercepted from him and included it full unedited. A month later, a 200-page book was delivered to Richard Cutterbrook's shop near St. Paul's Cathedral. They swim. The mark of Satan is upon them. The Civil War officially ended with the surrender of Oxford on the 24th of June. Little over a week later, a publication called The Witches of Huntington was released through the Cutter Book Shop. It was intended to demonstrate how crafty and dangerous the devil tempt and seize on poor souls, and to warn how anger and malice and lust drag them to perdition. Cutter Book had added an additional something to the end of the work before publishing it, he added an advertisement for the John Gore book. Now, I don't know his stance on politics or morals or witch-finding, but it was certainly a smart business practice, since if someone was interested in reading this, they would likely be interested in reading the flip side of the coin, thus spreading Gore's point of disapproval of the witch-finders. About the time of this publication, Matthew Hopkins was attending an appointment at King's Lynn, he had been sent for by the mayor, Edward Robinson. 
Of course, the town had seen witches before. Mother Gabley had boiled eggs in a pail of water, which somehow sank a ship returning from Spain, killing 16 men. Now, the folklore goes that if you don't crack the bottom of your boiled eggs, witches would use them as boats and would sail on the seas and cast spells on ships to sink them. Anyway, back to Matthew Hopkins. He was brought to the town hall's wine cellar, which had been converted into a makeshift jail holding nine suspects. And for his cooperation in this, he was given £15 payment. After this, he travelled through Upwell and Littleport between the 14th and 19th of September, 1646, and was back in Kingsland by the 24th of September to give evidence on those nine suspects. Uh, it was a little bit of a troublesome outcome for Matthew Hopkins, since six were acquitted and one was determined not to be of sound mind. On the two remaining, sentences were carried out and the news came to the town that the plague was spreading. Now, it could be because of this, or embarrassment, he collected £2 payment and made a swift exit to the left. It was apparent from this, along with the rising number of judges throwing out their cases, Matthew Hopkins realised his days as a witch finder were soon coming to a close. If not the sceptics, but because it wasn't making much fiscal sense for towns to pay for their services. He was doing very little and getting a lot of money for it. Yarmouth had already reached this decision. Despite all the witches accused being convicted when Matthew Hopkins had been there last, a new run of them had been rounded up, and this time they had all been acquitted. The Chamberlain of Yarmouth took meticulous records of the account books. Matthew Hopkins never received his promised payment. Two days after King's Lynn, John Godbold oversaw the trials of three witches on the Isle of Ely. Two acquitted and one thrown out on a technicality. Matthew Hopkins had failed there as well. They swim. The mark of Satan is upon them. Matthew Hopkins was present at the Norfolk Assizes, which had been on hold for the past year. Some gentlemen of the county more than likely had read Gaul's Select Cases on Conscience, wrote a list of questions for the Witchfinder, which they gave to the judges. The questions were as follows. Did Hopkins' success not indicate that he himself had a diabolical secret? And the rumour not true that he had stolen the devil's book containing the names of every witch in England? If his knowledge wasn't born of study, why was he specially blessed with this expertise. Why would the devil need to suckle blood for sustenance? Could these signs be trusted as it is natural to have abrasions and bumps from things such as hemorrhoids or piles or childbearing? Using Hopkins' own recorded accounts, they further asked, did Hopkins use unlawful courses of torture to make them say anything for ease and quiet? Were they not deprived of sleep and then walked up and down until their feet blistered? Did he not put words in suspects' mouths and conjole them with threats and blandishments? And finally, to punctuate these questions, they ended with this. Could Matthew Hopkins deny that what they really did was fleece the country of their money? They swim. 
of Satan is upon them. Stern was left to the final stretch of witch-finding on his own as Hopkins decided to stay home. Now, he could have written his rebuttal anywhere, but his health was quickly starting to deteriorate. He blamed bad air for his dizziness and fatigue, lack of appetite and rasping cough that nothing seemed to fix. Now, to be fair to him, bad air usually accompanies places where one can catch TB. He did manage to finish the tract. It was only a couple of pages long and filled with deflections. Upon the accusation that it takes a witch to find a witch, he retorted, If Satan's kingdom be divided against itself, how shall it stand? And that he wished he had a book with all the witches' names in it, it would have made his job so much easier. He told some stories about his experiences as if it lended him an air of authority. Too many answers he just straight up lied in. I didn't use sleep deprivation, we tended to the watches with the food and water, whatever they needed, and I didn't dunk anyone into the river. Now, despite the rejection of performing trial by water, he still took a moment to defend the action on the grounds that James I rulings and that the apostates denied their baptism and were exposed by this means. He protested the discounting of his confessions, extracted by walking, watching, swimming, or false promises. Now, just so we're clear, he would never torture a suspect, but it's okay to. So if anyone finds that he did torture a suspect, the ruling is still valid, no take-backs. Now, when it came to the final question about money, he swore that he never took more than 12 shillings from a town, and that if his expenses went over this, he happily paid out of pocket. Remember, he had just been paid close to four times that for being a witness at King's Lynn. With that written, Hopkins took the manuscript to London, where he published through Richard Royston, who had previously been involved in scandalous publications that were anti-Parliament. Hopkins titled his pamphlet, The Discovery of Witches. That was actually the short title. The full title was, The Discovery of Witches in Answer to Several Queries Lately Delivered to the Judges of the Assize for the County of Norfolk and now published by Matthew Hopkins Witchfinder for the benefit of the whole kingdom. And then it ended with Exodus 22.18. Thou shalt not suffer a witch to live, completely misunderstanding why these practices have been called into question. It had nothing to do with the validity or realness of witches, but rather the validity of the evidence presented in the trials of these witches. Now, either way, this publication was the first recorded usage of the term Witchfinder General. Matthew Hopkins, or perhaps the publisher, commissioned a woodprint of Hopkins in a shiny little hat and cape, beside him Elizabeth Clark and Rebecca West feeding their familiars. The discovery of witches went on sale in the last two weeks of May 1647. Three months later, Matthew Hopkins would expire, his dry cough becoming a never-ending fever, and a wet cough that I suspect probably had a lot of blood in it, as one normally does when being taken by consumption. We're not sure if Hopkins died alone, but we're sure that his body was handled the exact same way as every other Puritan body. That is to say, no rites, no rituals, just buried in a ground soon after death. The gravedigger scrolling in his ledger. 
Matthew Hopkins, son of James Hopkins, minister of Wenham, was buried at Misley, August 12, 1647. And thus ends the life of Matthew Hopkins, Witchfinder General. The Hopkins legacy soon blended with myth and legend. Publications released in the decades that followed either condemned him or mocked him, or both. Attacking both religious enthusiasm and magic in 1650, Henry Moore referred to Matthew Hopkins as that troublesome fellow, which is a harsh assessment of character for the time. While witch executions in England certainly reduced after this time, they never completely went away. As late as 1945, there was a lynching the locals suspected of a witch, Charles Walton if anyone wants to look him up. Matthew Hopkins' zealous persecution of witches was just reaching the New World by 1648, a court in Massachusetts name-dropped England's witch trials. And we know that the worst of the witch hunts in America were yet to come. 45 years later would mark the beginning of the Salem witch trials, and it is certainly something I want to touch on in the future. But for now, that ends the life of Matthew Hopkins, Witchfinder General. Thank you for listening. You can support this podcast by sharing with your friends and leaving a review. 